the Irish Times business podcast in association with Irish Life. We can help your company and your employees look forward to tomorrow. We know Irish Life. We are Irish Life. Hello and welcome to Inside Business with Kieran Hancock, a podcast from the Irish Times. This week we looked at the Paradise Papers, which has lifted the lid on how wealthy individuals and corporations use offshore structures to avoid paying tax on their income. In a few moments, you'll hear from Colm Keena of the Irish Times and UK professor and tax expert Richard Murphy on these revelations. In the second half of the show, Charlie Taylor of the Irish Times will report from the Web Summit in Lisbon on the latest thinking and innovations from the world of technology. Don't forget you can subscribe to this podcast for free on iTunes and it's also available on our website irishtimes.com forward slash podcasts. Now, over the past number of days, Paradise Papers has lifted the lid on the practices undertaken by wealthy individuals and large corporations around the world, including Ireland, to shelter their income from tax. This has emerged from millions of documents that have been leaked to the International Consortium of Investigative Journalists, of which the Irish Times is a member. And joining me to discuss the importance of the story are Colin Keenan, the legal affairs correspondent of the Irish Times, and by phone from the UK by Richard Murphy, a professor of practice in international political economy at City University, and also a campaigner on the whole issue of tax. Colm Keeney, you've been doing the heavy lifting for the Irish Times on this issue. Just give us the background um, to how these documents came to be in the uh, possession of the ICIJ and I, I suppose the sort of broad import of, of, uh, of these millions of documents. Yes, um, there's a, a firm, an offshore firm called Appleby and they're one of the leading uh, offshore law firms on the planet and um, a lot of their documentation was leaked to the Suddeutsche Zeitung uh, newspaper in, in Germany and they shared this uh, documentation with the International Consortium of Investigative Journalists. Of which the Irish Times of which is a the Irish Times are member. So how long have you been working on this story? Well, I started working on the project in, in March. So on and off, I've been looking at the data. It's such a huge amount of data. There's, the, 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 the stash, if you want to call it that, also uh, involves uh, data from a, an Asian trust company and plus access to registries and a lot of offshore secrecy type jurisdictions sure. around the globe. So it's a lot of information. Now, a lot of names that uh, Irish people would be very familiar with have been caught up in this. AIB, obviously, one of the biggest banks in Ireland. Apple, which is a major operation in Ireland, one of the biggest technology companies around the world. Nike, big sportswear group. Dennis O'Brien, one of the leading businessmen in Ireland. Bono, everybody knows Bono, I think, around the world. And also, uh, curiously, some of the actors from the TV hit TV show Mrs. Brown's Boys uh, who've been using uh, entities in uh, far-off lands to to shelter their uh, tax from, or shelter their income, rather, from tax yes. in rather uh, curious ways. Maybe we'll start with, with AIB. Just tell us exactly um, how AIB is ca- caught up well, in this. Um, the law firm provided legal advice over the decades uh, to AIB's offshore operation in, in Jersey and the Isle of Man. Uh, the office in the Isle of Man, Appleby's office in the Isle of Man, provided this information. But more recently then, AIB decided in 2012 it would close down these operations and um, it outsourced a lot of the work in relation to winding down the operations to, to, to Appleby. So when you see the Appleby files, you're sort of inside the doors of, um, of AIB's offshore operations for about two decades. And this included, uh, obviously, a period of time when it was effectively in state ownership. Absolutely, After yeah. being bailed out by Irish taxpayers. Bailed out, and I think the current estimate is about, it cost us about seven billion um, to to bail out the bank. And it was all under government ownership while the Appleby and uh, the remnants of AIB were discussing what to do with the historical data 
in the context of Revenue Commissioner's inquiries and efforts to get access to that data. So the data had been moved in 2006 to AIB's uh, IT server in the Republic, and it was a centralised system. And at the time, the offshore operations were very unhappy about this or worried about it. And because they put it basically within the remit of the Revenue Commissioner's well, here. What they were worried about, if the revenue could successfully... Uh, argue that it became uh, within their power, within AIB PLC's power, then they could argue that it's resident here in the Republic. And um, so there was a lot of consultations within the group in its Mm. legal department in 2006 about that. Then the the information was centralised, but in 2015, when it's under government ownership, AIB in Dublin asked AIB offshore, can we, the revenue has got a court order, can we have a look at some of your stuff? And they said no. And then afterwards, they decided we're going to look for this stuff to be moved back to the Isle of Man uh, and Jersey. So to make sure that the revenue can't get um, their hands on it so easily. And um, this is in a context where the bank describes its clients. The offshore operation has very high net worth in the individuals. The bank supplying them with uh, uh, helping with tax planning. And um, they were the type of people who were very, very sensitive about their uh, privacy. Yeah, and what's AIB had to say about this? Nothing really, other than that they, you know, they closed down their operations. Uh, and the government, because obviously it's in, it's still majority yeah, owned by the well, state, over seventy percent owned by the state. I don't have a comment from the government. No comment from the government either, right? Dennis O'Brien, you've been writing about Dennis O'Brien in the Irish Times uh, in today's newspaper, today being Wednesday, uh, about the Criminal Assets Bureau seeking documents from AIB as part of its investigation into transactions between Mr. O'Brien and the former Minister for Communications, Michael Lowry. That's right. As part of this wind down of the uh, the AIB operation, Appleby <coughs> produces uh, quarterly reports on how things are going and there's problematic cases. For In one instance, there was an account where they issued a, a cheque for three point something million and the person hadn't cashed it. Over, and they, they were wondering what to do, you know. And um, so they have all these problematic cases. But one of them was to do the files of an, an account in the name of Aidan Phelan, a former financial advisor to Dennis O'Brien. And uh, they'd been contacted by the police in the Isle of Man. AIB had been contacted by the police in the Isle of Man in 2015 and asked about the records on this account because the Isle of Man police had in turn been requested by the Criminal Assets Bureau here in the Republic to to get this information. And this uh, account featured in the Moriarty Tribunal's investigation into the so-called money trail between um, Dennis O'Brien and Michael Lowry. Yeah. Um, but again, any, any uh, response from Dennis O'Brien or indeed Michael Lowry? Well, Michael Lowry says he neither he nor any of his advisors have been asked about this matter by the Criminal Justice Bureau. Aidan Phelan, the man who whose name was on the account, but the money was in that was in the account was Dennis O'Brien's. He was asked to set up the account by Dennis O'Brien uh, in his own name, in Phelan's name. Aidan Phelan said nobody had been in contact with him and a request for a comment from Dennis O'Brien. Better no response. Yeah. Richard Murphy, I know you've been following this from the UK. Just, I mean, there's nothing illegal about any of this, is there? Well, that's a very difficult question to answer. And that's because a lot of offshore actually is, exists in a sort of limbo land. You know, it, it may well be legal in the place where the transactions are registered, whether that be Jersey, Cayman, or wherever else, because actually it's quite easy to be legal in those places. And let's also be clear very little happens there. You know, Mm. these transactions are recorded in those places, but we know that the real substance of them is in another place, elsewhere, we call it. Now, 
Is it legal in the other place elsewhere? We don't know because it often isn't declared there. So there is a lot of ambiguity about legality here. It's unlikely to be obviously illegal, but is it obviously legal? Again, I, I can't be certain because we won't know enough. That would require things to go to court. And you know, I, I think we have to be clear. People are working deliberately in a grey space. And that's one of the characteristics of offshore. It's all a bit grey. And of course, I don't know how big it's been in the UK. Obviously, it's garnered a lot of publicity in Ireland because some of the high profile people here who've been caught up in the wash, if you like. I know Lewis Hamilton, the Formula One world champion, who's one of the richest sports people in the world. He avoided paying European taxes on his private jet by using an Isle of Man mm. scheme um, that's been investigated now by Her Majesty's Revenue and Customs. Uh, and, and, and others have got caught up in it as well. But the curious thing is that a lot of this was going on in UK territories like uh, Jersey and the Isle of Man. And that's been the subject of uh, quite some debate, hasn't it? That has definitely been the subject of some debate. There was a debate in the House of Commons in the UK last night by Margaret Hodge, who has been one of the great campaigning MPs on this whole issue in the UK. And in fact, she used some data that I prepared. Um, I've had a long-running spat with the Isle of Man, for example, because way back in 2007, I wondered how the Isle of Man could afford to offer a 0% corporation tax rate, which it was then pioneering, uh, and still provide what looked like the sort of services that people in Ireland, the sort of services that people in the UK expect from their, tax, from their government. And the answer was, I discovered then that the UK was heavily subsidising the Isle of Man to be a tax haven, because in fact, the UK and the Isle of Man operate identical VAT systems. That's not true, by the way, of Jersey and Guernsey or Cayman or anywhere else. But the Isle of Man does share a VAT system with the UK. And in fact, under some very old and very bizarre rules, which date back to 1911, um, the UK was sharing revenue with the Isle of Man and giving it far too much money, which was letting it operate as a tax haven and not having to collect money to provide its own government services. Services. Well, that was sort of corrected by 2011, and one third of the Isle of Man government's revenue was taken away as a result of that adjustment, which didn't make me desperately popular over there. And now I've recalculated the figures and discovered that, in fact, we're still subsidizing the Isle of Man under the new formula by, to the tune of about 70 million a year, not as much as we used to, but still quite a lot. So that's actually bringing this very much closer to home as far as the UK is concerned. You know, these places are not only having the Queen's head on their stamp, some indication that they are, in a sense, still part of you know, the UK. We're responsible for them internationally and their foreign affairs. And of course, tax abuse is all about foreign affairs because it's about offshore. It's about literally these places providing facilities to people from other countries. But we actually are letting them do that. And first of all, that makes the UK pretty darned unpopular um, because some of the biggest tax havens in the world are very clearly flying the British flag and issuing British passports. But we could actually take direct action to close them down. There's no question about that. The UK does have the power to intervene in these places if a matter does very directly deal with a foreign affairs issue or would bring them into disrepute and the UK into disrepute as well. So we could definitely intervene. There's no question, but we don't. And, and why is that? I mean, are, are politicians running scared of these wealthy people and these big corporations that invest so heavily and create so many jobs around the world? Well, I think it's partly because of the power of the City of London. You might as well see the Isle of Man, Guernsey, Jersey, Cayman, British Virgin Islands, Gibraltar, you know, the list goes on and on, uh, British Virgin Islands, Bermuda, as branch offices, if you like, of the City of London. 
You know, they're the places that are used to funnel the money back to London tax-free. And in that sense, the power of the City of London um, is incredibly high inside the UK political environment. And the government doesn't readily upset the, the money men and women. And as a consequence, uh, there is a great reluctance to take this issue on. The reality is that at some point they're going to have no choice. Because as we're seeing, this is actually costing the UK a lot of money. I mean, historically, there's been big debate about how much tax is not collected in the UK. Again, I've been a participant in that. But new data from Gabriel Zuckman, who's one of Thomas Piketty's associates in the academic world, where I also now am a participant. Uh, but Gabriel Zuckman tends to understate his estimates of tax avoidance, in my opinion. And he's estimating that the UK is losing over 10 billion a year to corporate tax avoidance. Now, 10 billion a year is coming on for 20% uh, of our national deficit this year. Now, if that that's collectible in any shape or form, then people should be interested. And people are interested because they're saying, hang on a minute, if the big people aren't paying, then I probably am. And, and interestingly, Donald, so Donald Trump has been making a big uh, play on this, hasn't he? He's been talking about bringing US tax dollars home and stopping the bleed of jobs and, and, and all of that. Is this one of the issues that Donald Trump is actually right on? Well, Donald Trump is, in a sense, right to say there's an issue. His solutions, I'm afraid to say, aren't that great, because in practice, what he's going to do is increase the tax rate on most ordinary people in the USA to decrease the tax rates on the companies and on the direct wealth of those who are the wealthiest in the US. So that's not a solution which is likely to go down too well with those who put him into office, believing he was going to drain the swamp and was going to basically tell Washington what it could do with itself. He appears to be applauding Washington and the power institutions instead. But he's right that there is an international tax solution. One of the things that is interesting in Donald Trump's proposal, which is hidden in the small print, but which is worrying a lot of U.S. corporations, is the suggestion that the U.S. might go for a minimum worldwide corporation tax rate on U.S.-owned companies. Now, that would have a serious implication, not least for Ireland, because, in fact, the suggested corporation tax rate may well be higher than the 12.5%. And so the appeal of Ireland might begin to be diminished if um, Donald Trump was to do that, because profits flowing to Ireland would, in fact, be double taxed in the States then. Um, and if that's true, then obviously that has major implications for you guys. Um, and I think you'd have to think very hard about how to react to that. Now, Donald Trump's proposals have a history of not being turned into law so far, and there's no indication as yet that his tax proposals are going to go anything other than the way his health proposals are gone, which is pretty much nowhere. But he is talking about things which were at one time unacceptable like minimum corporation taxes. That opens up new possibilities in international debate at the very least. And the appetite for change to the corporation tax system is enormous worldwide. And what most people recognize is that basically the system is in intensive care. And what has been done to it so far, things like country by country reporting, which I am heavily in favor of because I originally designed it, are only sticking plasters on a system that is fundamentally broken at the moment. And some new basis of international agreement is necessary to make sure that the right amount of tax is paid in the right place at the right time, where right means that the economic substance of what is going on, you know, the economic reality is reflected in the way that something's reported for tax. 
Well, the truth is, there's very little economic reality happens in tax havens, and so that would pretty much wipe them out of this equation. And again, you can see why the money people who are so heavily invested in these places are also pretty worried, and they have massive lobbying bucks to spend in favour of their system. Colin Keane, um, Ireland has, I mean, the Irish government has consistently denied it we're a tax haven uh, and won't, you know, won't have that label sort yeah. of attached to us. But nonetheless, we have we have played tax game, haven't we, over the years? You've covered this in the past. You've covered the OECD and its best BEPS uh, process to try and sort of bring some uh, level of harmonisation to what goes on around the world mm-hmm. in terms of how corporates are, are taxed. We know that the EU, you know, the likes of France and Germany and so on, would like to see some uh, corporate tax harmonisation. Ireland is fighting tooth and nail against that with some other of the um, smaller uh, member states. But, you know, some of the rhetoric that we've heard from opposition politicians in particular this week about, you know, what a what a, an awful thing it is to uh, witness all of this tax avoidance by various uh, Irish ent- entities. Does it not ring a bit hollow, given that Ireland has played this tax game uh, so probably so well, so expertly over the years? Well, certainly, certainly the, the parties of government have been in and out of government buildings over the years and they've all gone along with this policy of attracting uh, foreign direct investment by way of, uh, in, par- in part because of our tax policies. They've always said they're against the, the brass plate operations that you have in the Cayman Islands. And I was quite quite interested to hear a guy from the OECD responding to Paradise Papers saying this is very interesting, but it's, it's a historic it's historic. And the reason he, he, he was saying that was that he thinks that the, the world is changing as a result of the OECD's efforts to uh, reform international tax. And it, it, it is interesting in one, in one regard because our statistics here in Ireland, our economic statistics, have gone a bit bonkers as of, as of about 2015. And a, lo- a lot of the speculation is pretty much confirmed this week. is huge amounts of intellectual property being moved to Ireland. Enormous amounts of it. Leprechaun and economics, I think Paul Krugman. Yeah, that, that's uh, right. That's right. But but the reason is that is that these these uh, multinationals are putting their IP where their substance is. So so there are people working down in Cork for Apple, and there are people working for Facebook and Google, and. Uh, the yeah, but hold on. We have this 13 billion Apple tax bill, which the European Commission says that Ireland now has to recoup, and that was basically related to entities that were kind of registered in Ireland or yeah, you know somewhat were not tax resident anywhere, but not tax yeah, resident yeah, yeah, anywhere. Yeah, 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 and they were paying damn all taxes. And now, now we've swapped to there being tax resident in Ireland, a major operation tax resident, but they have they're not paying more tax, so it's a pretty good trick. But nevertheless, the fact is they've they've moved a huge amount of their operation and IP onshore into a tax resident country besides substance. And it is, it seems, been driven by the international debate that's gone on about reforming the tax system. So there is kind of something happening, all right. You know, it's not resolving the problem. But the the being offshore, you know, in a small island in the Caribbean and having all these professionals who are filling in forms and doing this process and so on, that in a way have no reality. You, you know, if you ask these people, what's this transaction about and what's the company do and so on, they don't really know that much and they don't really care that much. They're just going through process. So you can say it's located in mm. Cayman, but in fact, the decisions and all the real work is happening onshore in other places. So there does seem to be a shift away from that kind of brass plate stuff to more like the Irish type uh, yeah. thing where you're alongside the factory, so to speak. Yeah. Richard Murphy, do you buy that? Uh, and and do you think that yeah. Ireland's on a slippery slope, as it were, in terms of our tax regime? 
Well, I think Ireland's been on a slippery slope for a long time, and I have never thought that Ireland has helped itself with a 12.5% rate. And look, I have an Irish passport. It's not surprising, perhaps, with my name, although I don't sound very Irish, I admit, like so many. Um, So I do think Ireland could improve its international standing by being clearer about where it is on tax. The point, though, about things are changing is an interesting one. The person who made the comments was Pascal Sanamon, who's the head of tax at the OECD, and I know Pascal. And I think to some extent he's right. Um, Why is he right? Because, look, we have undoubtedly seen some changes as a result of the base erosion and profit shifting program, which started in 2012, and which did indeed result in this adoption of country-by-country reporting for multinational companies for tax purposes, not on public record, only for tax purposes at the moment. And what that means is that a multinational does now have to report to its head office location tax authority, and they share it with others, though. what it's doing in each and every country where it operates. Now, that means immediately that major tax authorities, at least, maybe not developing country ones, but major tax authorities are now seeing who is putting money in tax havens and whether there are matching sales, matching staff, and matching assets. Well, if you've got no sales in a tax haven, you've got no staff in a tax haven, and you've got no physical assets in a tax haven, but you've got enormous profits, many of which are arising on intra-group transactions, i.e. not with real customers in the real world, then clearly that's a red flag and says there's something going on here which is pretty artificial and therefore it should be investigated. So that reform in itself, I know from my discussions and I've met about 15, I think, finance directors of major UK companies over the last year or two, is having a major implication on how they're looking at their group structures. And they're basically simplifying them. They are sorting themselves out and saying but I just, it's I, not I, worth the risk. I just wonder whether it's always said that criminals are often one step ahead of the uh, authorities because you know, when you shut down one sort of criminal activity, they just find another one to go into. And I just wonder whether with, you know, tax advisors, tax planning and so forth, whether, you know, national uh, governments or the likes of the European Union or the OECD, etc., whether we'll ever really, truly get on top of this problem or whether corporations and wealthy individuals will just continue to find some other wheeze, some other way of avoiding paying tax. I believe that in the international company, corporate environment, then solutions are available. And the obvious way, direction of travel here is the European Union's common consolidated corporate tax base, which is desperately unpopular in Ireland. And it is, because it would result in less profits being taxed in Ireland. I mean, I don't think there's any question about that. What it does is take the profits for Europe as a whole, consolidates the accounts across the whole of Europe, and then allocates them based on a formula of where are the sales, i.e. the customers, where are the people employed, and where are the physical assets. Now, that's one reason why, literally, people and assets are moving back into Ireland now to increase the weighting for this potential risk. Because under country-by-country reporting, that's one of the things that's indicated. That's why assets are moving back onshore. So, but that CCCTB would simplify the system. A lot of corporations say it would make their lives a lot easier. It would make their lives more certain. And remember, companies like certain tax bills. So that's very popular overall with companies. They don't think it would massively change their tax bills. It's not very popular with individual countries. So there's a political negotiation to go on that one. But the corporate world can be solved. Individuals, I think they're actually the answer is to knock out the supply chain. 
And I think this is where the focus is now going to be put. Who's the supply chain? Well, the likes of Applebee's and the other offshore magic circle lawyers. There are about eight firms of lawyers who provide a lot of the services offshore. And I'm afraid to say I'm, I'm a chartered accountant, and accountants have got a lot to answer for here. You know, the big firms of accountants, and there are only around six big ones in the world and four dominate, um, are in most of the world's major tax havens. I did research on this earlier this year. You can find that on the web. It was published um, by an EU group in the EU Parliament. And we looked at it, and you know, the big four are in around 50 tax havens, however you define them, and there are various definitions around the world. They underpin the architecture of offshore by being present, by auditing it, by making it possible. So we need to go out if to the advisors. Re- so if they were required to be registered as if they were international firms and that responsibility was placed on a head office to make sure that there was proper compliance the world over, instead of them splitting their operations up and claiming each country is a separate operation quite unrelated to the others, which is what for legal purposes they do, then we would see a massive change in their behavior and it would be much harder to buy offshore services as a result. That would knock out the supply chain and I think things would dramatically change as a consequence. All right, Colin, I'm going to close with you. Just a a funny uh, one, if you like, is Mrs. Brown's Boys has uh, got caught up in this the the uh, BBC RTE uh, production comedy production. Um, one of the funniest elements uh, of this whole Paradise Papers has been the fact that a number of the actors on the show have been using off- offshore structures to shelter their income from tax. Uh, just explain to us quickly how they how they've been doing that. Well, they 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 say that uh, it's money from their state. The stage productions of Mrs. Brown's Boy gets gets paid to an English agent that acts for them. Then the agent puts it in into funds in Mauritius that are controlled by trusts in Mauritius, and that the actors act as investment advisors to the to the funds. And it seems that the, the biggest uh, investment advice they they give is that the funds should loan money, should buy promissory notes, and the promissory notes are are about loans to the actual actors. And when you look at the documents, it's extraordinary. Most of the correspondence. Yeah, how much money are we talking about? Oh, a couple of hundred thousand each. Uh, for the three actors over uh, a period of 14, 2014 to 2016, in excess of about £2 million, maybe, English pounds. They're it demonstrates what a cash cow yeah, is, Brendan's yeah, boys. Really, really, really big. Stage show, obviously. Yeah, really, really big. Brendan O'Carroll himself is not part of this scheme. But So you can see in the documentation that they're using their iPhones and they're getting these emails from people in, in Mauritius and from banks and so on, saying, as an investment advisor, do you want to buy buy this, uh, this promissory note, you know, the linked to a loan to you and sure yeah where when will I get my money you know 280 290,000 pounds and then the money just lands in their bank account here in Dublin and uh, they don't have to pay tax on it because it's a loan and, and the they, loan never gets repaid well that certainly looks like that they never have repaid a loan and right. uh, they, they say that they weren't too clear on when they were supposed to pay back the loans right well probably one of the funniest lines out of Mrs Brown's boys I would argue over the last uh, number of years Colin Keane and Richard Murphy thank you for joining us we're going to take a short break now. When we return, we'll be talking to Charlie Taylor of the Irish Times, who's been reporting from the Web Summit in Lisbon. Only 29% of us know how much we need to live on in retirement. Irish Life is changing that with Empower, a new approach to company pensions that helps change the way your employees think about their future. For more, go to irishlifeempower.ie or talk to your pension consultant. We know Irish Life. We are Irish Life. Irish Life Assurance PLC is regulated by the Central Bank of Ireland. All information sourced for Irish Life June 2015. 
Now, welcome back. This is Inside Business with Kieran Hancock. Uh, let me remind you that you can download this podcast for free in iTunes, and it's also available on our website, irishtimes.com forward slash podcast. Now, for the past few days, the annual Web Summit has been underway in Lisbon. Uh, started, of course, by Irishman Paddy Cosgrave. Uh, it decamped from Dublin a couple of years ago, and there for the Irish Times has been Charlie Taylor, our tech guru. Charlie, you're very welcome to the show. Hi, how are you doing there, Kieran? Very well, thanks. Very well. It's been a busy few days. You've been filing a lot of copy. Give us a flavour for some of the major things that have emerged at the Web Summit. Yeah, I mean, uh, the first thing to say is that, you know, Web Summit is certainly bigger, whether it's better or not, is obviously going yeah, to be... Yeah, 1,200 speakers. It's hard to, hard to imagine yeah. 1,200 speakers. Something like yeah, uh, 25 different conferences going on within the summit. Absolutely, yeah. It's huge. It's like being at something like Glastonbury or Electric Picnic, where no matter where you are, you're looking at another, you're, you're there sitting there thinking, I wonder if something better is going on in the stage across the way. You know, Charlie, let's talk about some of the announcements you've heard so far at the Web Summit. Now, Google, uh, one of their units, Waymo, has started test driving self-driving cars. So what is this, uh, what is this latest test from Google told us? Yeah, I mean, basically, that they've started test driving self-driving cars without anyone in the driver's seat on public roads. Normally, you know, when they've got self-driving cars, they usually have someone sitting there just in case that they can switch over if necessary. But I mean, now they're kind of going, they've, they've moved to a point where they can do go beyond this and they're going to soon start inviting people to use the service. Um, you'll, they'll be able to sit in the, the, the back and be able to hit a stop button if, if required, but hopefully, obviously, they won't need to. I mean, I suppose the way that Waymo, the chief executive who was on uh, Web Summit yesterday, um, John Crapple, was saying that, you know, I mean, the key thing about this is that while we may have fears about self-driving cars, it's 94% of car crashes in the U.S. at the moment are due in part to human error. You know, mm. and the other point of that is that most vehicles, they idle 95% of the time. So, you know, the, their argument is basically that this is a good thing for us all. While it might take a bit of time for us to kind of come around to the idea of it, it it's ultimately better in terms of road safety, better use of how we might lay out in our city, our cities in the future, etc. Yeah. So how long before we get self-driving cars on a, you know, on a scale basis? Yeah, I think I think that's still a long, long way away yet. You know, I mean, this is still what they're doing. What Waymo is doing is, is rolling this out on a trial basis just in Phoenix, Arizona, where, you know, it, it, it's very flat roads, it's desert, so there's not really, you know, huge issues in terms of bumping, you know, narrow roads as you would get in Dublin or, you know, built up congestion, etc. So, I mean, this is very much still at a trial stage. And I, I was actually talking coincidentally with the head of my taxi, who we know obviously from Dublin, uh, Andrew Pennington yesterday, and he was saying that he thinks, you know, self-driving cars are a long way away yet. We're talking for 10, 20 years when to be fully accepted on our roads. Right, okay. Now, Uber, uh, as we all know, the taxi ride-sharing company, that has its own plans to introduce a new short-haul airborne service and that will cost less, apparently, than driving your own car. How's that going to work? Absolutely. Well, that's a good question. I mean, someone, I, I, a few people, when I was on Twitter earlier, saying what I had seen this morning, um, we're kind of questioning, kind of going, well, if they're not investing in sensors as part of this, then, you know, this is dead in the water straight away. Um, yeah, what they've done is they've announced more details about Uber Air, which they, they had kind of trickled some stuff out about it last year. But they basically, uh, more details about Uber Air, which is they're going to launch it in L.A. in 2020. And that's one year after that such a service was kind of first envisioned in the original Blade Runner movie. Um, so uh, that's, okay. I'm sure it's just coincidence. But they say the new service will cost about as much as it costs now to hail an UberX. It'll be cheaper than driving your own car. And this is basically a system, you know, which 
you know, is an electrical vertical takeoff and landing. So it would be able to take off and land on top of buildings. So but, instead of congested know, roads, we'll have congested air, airspace. Mm. Well, yeah, there is that danger. I mean, you know, and, and as a part of today's announcement, um, they also announced a partnership with NASA, who are obviously, we, we know, the big space agency, uh, about a new air traffic management partner, partnership. So, I mean, they're obviously foretelling a day where, you know, we are going to have a lot of uh, traffic in the skies, but they, they kind of suggest that, you know, we're, we're, it's going to be better than the, the current traffic issues we have in most cities. Yeah, okay. A lot of big hitters at this event. Uh, we had the UK um, scientist, probably one of the most uh, famous people in the world, Stephen Hawking, and he was talking about artificial in- intelligence and saying that moving into the future, it could be bad, it could be good for humanity, or it could be very bad. We don't know yet. Yes, I mean, one of, one of, the, one of the key things to note about Web Summit this year is usually, you know, I mean, everyone's kind of smiley, happy, tech is fantastic, tech is only for good. But there's been sort of a more cautious note sounded this year. And I think some of that's to do with the, you know, the environment we find ourselves in with fake news and, the, the, you know, that kind of stuff that's going on. And so with that, you know, there's, there's also fears of like, you know, artificial intelligence is rolling along as, as we see and rather than just being something that we imagine about might happen in 80 years time with something kind of going, that's actually something that's around the corner. And on opening night, Stephen Hawking gave the opening speech at Web Summit. It was, everyone was delighted to see him. He was a, a good choice for a keynote speaker. But yes, as, as you say, he said it may be the best or the worst thing ever to happen to humanity. Now, he also said he, he's an optimist and that he thinks, you know, things that can, you know, hopefully things that things will work out well, you know, and that, you know, uh, we can create uh, artificial intelligence that will work in harmony with us and for our benefits. But he also said, you know, we need to be kind of be aware that it does also bring problems that we haven't envisaged before. And we need to kind of prepare for those risks, I suppose. OK. And an Irish flavour to the Web Summit, and perhaps we wouldn't have thought of this beforehand, but Ryanair hosted a press conference and I understand they announced that they're going to be doing a link up with Aer Lingus on long haul flights. Yeah, they have kind of touched on this before where, you know, the idea is that you'd be able to, you know, you might want to book a, a flight to JFK from from London. So you could do it, you know, you'd book the Ryanair bit to, from London to Dublin and then from Dublin to JFK with Aer Lingus. So it would be sort of a seamless switching from one airline to another. Now, originally there, there was talk of that this would happen sort of around now, actually, I think it was. But um, uh, Kenny Jacobs, the marketing guy, was uh, given a press conference in Lisbon yesterday, and he suggested that it's going to be sort of the first half of next year now that we should see that. Right. Interesting enough, you know, uh, Lingus is a big rival, but I mean, they, what they say is that, you know, they're, they're hoping that they'll be able to expand a service such as this out to all IAG airlines, which includes, you know, BA, as we know, and Frelin and Spain. But also, you know, they're open to chats with everyone. There's been talk of them kind of possibly teaming up with Norwegians, say, for example, who, you know, Irish audiences would know very well. So, you know, I mean, they, they see this as the next step in terms of, I suppose, a seamless service for customers. OK. And sticking with the Irish theme, Charlie, Plink, which is a financial payments startup, mm-hmm. has announced uh, the launch of a new money messaging app. Tell us how that's going to work. Yeah, the, the, their money messaging app uh, launched uh, in Ireland a while ago, but and they now have I think twelve and a half thousand users. They say in Ireland, but now they they they, they raised twenty five million in a Series A funding round to kind of fund uh, their expansion overseas earlier this year. And Portugal, you know, coincidentally with the uh, with the summit on, they've announced you know that they're rolling it out in Portugal. Um, they, they this is a sort of first 
first roll of the dice in a, in a pan-European expansion. Yeah, okay. Now, when when Web Summit decamped from Dublin, I think it was two years ago now at this stage, there was much controversy, much gnashing of teeth, and perhaps a few people hoping that Paddy Cosgrave and the Web Summit might fall on its face in Lisbon, but that actually doesn't seem to have been the case. No, I mean, I suppose a lot of people were kind of wondering, you know, last year, you know, was the first one in Lisbon. Maybe there was a sort of, uh, you know, uh, just the fact that it was new was kind of a least value to it. You know, the new host city, new venue, how excited, you know, how would it do second year round? But I mean, you know, I've been running around talking to people, lots of Irish attendees here, as you'd expect. And, you know, people from other countries as well. And overwhelmingly, it's been a very positive reaction to a web summit. They say, you know, it, it's bigger than ever. It's 60,000 techies here this year. Role that include, include the contractors, the caterers, the media, etc. And that, that goes to 80,000 people at the arena this year. Right. Doesn't but, sound um, like it's coming you know, back to it, Dublin anytime soon. No, I, I really don't think it will. You know, I mean, it, it's... It, it would be hard. I think it would be a bit of a sort of tail between its legs scenario for yeah, Paddy sure. Cosgrave and Co. If they did do that, and also I think it actually just works extremely well here. It's been while it's been extremely busy. It's also relatively easy to catch up with people if you're trying sure. to meet them in terms of okay. with investors or, like in my case, trying to meet up with people to interview. Sure, um, sure. Very easy to get yourself around, and you know, overall they have to be given um, plaudits for organising a very well a very good conference this year. And finally, Charlie, uh, you've seen Into the Future over the past few days here at the Web Summit. You've spoken to a lot of people. I'm sure you've attended a lot of presentations and demonstrations. What's the most exciting thing you've seen or heard uh, over the past few days? I wrote a piece yesterday about meeting Sophia the robot, you know, which in a way is, is, you know, a a bit of a gimmick and and it was was as much as the the Hanson Robotics who have created uh, Sophia would say themselves. Um, you know, she's, she's a humanoid robot, the, the, first, the first one to be given citizenship. She was granted citizenship by Saudi Arabia uh, fairly recently. Now, she's much more short, sort of human-like than the robots we've, we've tended to see in the past. She, can, she does learn as she goes. So the, mm. she's, uh, the software is artificial intelligence software, so she does learn how to interact and to build on her intelligence from that. Now, as, as I say, it is a certain amount of uh, gimmick with it, but I mean, behind that is also the idea of like, you know, it's helping us to get used to AI. And uh, Ben Gertzel, the guy who, who's the, is, who works for Hanson Robotics and, and has been t- trawling around with Sophia, said one of the key things that they're doing is looking to introduce a new sort of AI marketplace where anyone that's creating artificial intelligence products, um, would be able to use it, would be able to feed it into this marketplace, a decentralized marketplace where all these AI devices can speak to each other for the first time. You know, you were used to seeing sort of Sophia the robot in one corner, self-driving cars in another. And this is an idea of like that soon all of that will be able to talk with each other and learn from each other. That's, nice. that's, that's both exciting and I think scary as well. Right, I'm I'm beside myself with excitement, Charlie. I have to tell you. Um, okay, we we'll leave it there, Charlie. We look forward we look forward to yet more copy on the web summit uh, in the coming hours. Um, that was uh, Charlie Taylor in Lisbon. Thank you for joining us. Okay, that's it for this week from Inside Business. My thanks to Colin Keener, Richard Murphy and Charlie Taylor. Declan Conlon produced the show with JJ Vernon as sound engineer. Don't forget you can get the latest business news straight into your inbox by signing up to our Business Today email at irishtimes.com. And you can also follow the Irish Times business feed on Twitter and Facebook. I'm Kieran Hancock. Until next time, take care.